Welcome to Chat NDT with ASNT, a podcast from the American Society for Non-Destructive Testing. I'm Debbie Siegler, the host of the podcast. Edify Technologies provides the highest performance NDT inspection technologies in the world and is proud to sponsor this ASNT podcast by NDT expert Lloyd Graham, who will present the latest innovations in tank floor inspections with the revolutionary FloorMap X. Lloyd Graham's experience in NDT spans over 15 years, where he has held several different roles, which have helped him gain a uniquely holistic view of the industry. Lloyd is an ASNT NDT Level 3 in ultrasonic testing and has worked in operations, project management, technical sales, and training. For the last four years, he has served customers all over the globe with Edify Technologies as a technical sales specialist focusing on magnetic flux leakage, pulsed eddy current, surface eddy current, and advanced ultrasonic technologies. Lloyd is currently a sales manager for Edify's robotic solutions. He is also a veteran of the United States Air Force, where he served as an F-16 avionics technician, and he holds an Associates of Science degree from Lone Star College in Houston, Texas. I'm interested in your backstory and what led you to Edify. So. I broke into the industry, non-destructive testing. I didn't know anything about it, which is, is kind of common. Most people don't unless they have a friend that works in it. And I just uh, applied for an advertisement on a Yahoo jobs board and got an interview and they gave me an aptitude test, a very basic, simple aptitude test. You know, like if gear A moves clockwise, what direction will gear B move? And uh, I thought it was kind of a fun test and apparently I... I I aced it. So that company that I worked for, they sent me immediately to training up in Pennsylvania. And that started my NDT career. I was out in the field as a technician doing a lot of uh, heat exchanger tests, uh, remote field tubing tests, some tank floor scanning, uh, just some general NDT. And so that's how I started my career. Um, but I had two young boys at the time. And so uh, the life of an NDT inspector is often on the road and often for many, many weeks at a time. So I left the industry uh, for a short little bit, about a year, went back into kind of retail management and, and was just kind of taking my time looking for something, an, another opportunity. That's where Olympus came in. So that's when I went to work for Olympus uh, as a repair technician for the, for the gauges, calibrating them. And I got that, you know, based on my experience from the U.S. Air Force where I worked on F-16s. And so I started working on the equipment now. Now I get a little bit bigger, broader range or view of the equipment that's used in the industry because it was kind of limited on that first job that I had in the in the field. Um, and then that drove me into sales opportunities, right? Because, you know, customer service, it was kind of rooted inside me from all the years of, <laughs> of the various jobs that I had and waiting tables and so forth. And and mm -hmm. so a headhunter reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to come this? And I said, wow, I feel so uh, uh, 
privilege that you guys would consider me. And so that I started uh, in a sales position for a company back then called Ashted Technology, and they rented NDT equipment here in the U.S. And so now, again, now I get to look into environmental monitoring equipment, remote visual inspection equipment, robotics. So now my view of NDT is just expanding. And then from Olympus, I, I moved, uh, I spent about seven years there. Then I moved into some operation and project management roles because now I'd had multiple years of experience with various applications. I had attained my ASNT level three during that time and uh, did some operations, some management and pipeline uh, manufacturing fabrication and did some contract work and found my way about five years ago uh, back to Silverwing. I got a nice interview with Silverwing. And then after I started with Silverwing, Edify uh, purchased Silverwing, one of their very first acquisitions. And so that's how I landed back at Edify is uh, that's my little short story of my NDT, uh, NDT career. So now I'm very interested in, in your time in the Air Force and, and the education and training that you received after high school, because we often talk to students or we share that you don't necessarily need a college education to get into NDT. So I'm interested in your education training and your time in the Air Force. Yeah, so some people from the military did NDT in the military, right? Like my good coworker, a colleague that I have, that's what he did. So I was focused on F-16 avionics, and so I specialized in communication systems. So UHF, VHF, uh, secure voice, cryptographic uh, transmissions, and what they call ECM, electronic countermeasures. And so the bulk of my training was with invisible energy uh, through radio waves, through magnetics, uh, and then, of course, electrical theory. And so that helped me understand the physics and, and behind some of this equipment that we use in NDT. The, the training that I got and the ability to learn, I guess, was a good way to, you know, because we had to cram it. I mean, they, they six months of a tech school was equivalent to almost two years of university. You know, we went to school for about nine, ten hours a day, every day. It was very uh, fast paced. And so that prepared me for any type of self-study that I needed to do once I got into the industry. But I still, I'm still pursuing my, <laughs> my, my education. It took me nine years to get my associate's degree after I got out of the Air Force, and I'm still pursuing my bachelor's. I have been uh, unregistered for, for about two or two and a half years now, but I'm still pursuing it. But absolutely. I think you're correct that everybody has a story about how they got into NDT. I mean, there's just nothing similar across the field. I mean, everybody has yes, such an interesting story. Let's talk about what you do now. And so can you describe the work you do and what a typical workday is like? Yes. So it's very dynamic. So it's very uh, fluid. So there's not a routine. So my official title is technical sales specialist, right? So when I came to Edify, you know, I came to Silvering and Edify acquired it. You know, they had their way of, of doing business and they had their existing sales force. And so they said, here's a place that we want you at. We want you uh, to work in conjunction with the sales manager to go out to these clients to do the actual demonstration of the equipment. And then we want you to go out into the field and say, for this equipment, this is capital equipment. It's, it, it's, it's not cheap. 
And so customers want to see this equipment on their asset. They want to see it out in the field. Show me what it actually is going to give me uh, on this particular pipe or this tank or this asset. Uh, show me the data. So that's what I'll go do. I'll go out into the field. Sometimes I'm in a ditch. I'm all over the world. I've been up to the North Slope. I've been all the way down to Chile and in between over to Asia. And so I get to travel, uh, show the, the equipment to the customers and then show it in work, you know, in action and then give them the reportable. Um, so that's one side of what I do. The other side of what I do is training, right? So if a, a customer purchases equipment, they obviously want to learn how to use it. Uh, COVID kind of uh, catapulted everybody, I think, but especially Edivite into online training. So we've compiled a very vast library of online training materials. And then the follow-up, the in-person part of the training, that's where I would come in. So you could sit in front of a computer all day, but if you're like me, you like to be shown, you like to have somebody interact with, and so I'll do that. Uh, as far as the training for the equipment. And then there's problems <laughs> or issues that a customer might have uh, with technology. Uh, if anything can go wrong, it will probably will go wrong. And so that's what I'm there for is if something goes wrong with the equipment, software, hardware, anything, or maybe the customer made a mistake or didn't set it up correctly, they'll call me and then I'll help support them. So let's start talking about MFL inspection. Can yes, you in a few short words, or as long as you want, can you explain the principles of MFL inspection? And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that's going to correct me, but I'm going to make it, you know, I got to do things really simple. So the simple way is you take a magnet, uh, it has magnetic fields, right? We'll call it flux. So it's the invisible energy coming out of the North Pole and going back into the South Pole. So we put that magnetic field in, uh, next to a carbon steel, right? So a ferrous material. So we inject magnetic flux lines into the material. Where there is a void, let's say it's a corrosion or a, or a defect, an anomaly, it's gonna disrupt the flow of that magnetic field in that part. When that disruption happens, those magnetic fields or those flux lines will leak out of the uh, asset. When they leak, when they jump up out of the air, and it's just for a very short time, we capture what they're doing while they're in the air through sensors. And then we process that, and then we relate that to how much a wall loss is, is there or what type of defect that we picked up. And how long has Edify been manufacturing MFL tank scanners? Okay, so Silverwing um, started a little over 30 years ago. So they've been making MFL scanners for 30 plus years. And that's one of our newest uh, floor scanners, the FMX. The X actually stands for 10. And because this is the 10th generation that Silverwing Edify has been in the business of making the scanner. So we're on our 10th generation scanner right now. What kind of magnets are on the scanners? The magnets on the scanners on, on your typical floor map scanner are going to be uh, permanent magnets. And what that, what's that mean? It's their, their rare earth magnets that they don't need any type of electrical uh, source to, to deploy them, right? So they're not electromagnet, uh, they're a permanent magnet. So if you think of a magnet, Debbie, is like a battery, right? So the bigger battery, the more voltage you have. The bigger magnet, the more uh, uh, magnetic flux lines that you can inject into that asset. So permanent magnets are, are what's on these scanners. And we have designed a new magnet. We call it the Smart Magnet. I think it's a trademarked uh, branding name. 
the smart magnet. So now we have the ability to inject more or less magnetic flux lines into the steel by tuning or turning or adjusting the amount of force or field being injected. And so normally, if you think of a, of a magnetic yoke, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've seen a magnetic yoke. It has the north and the south pole, and they're fixed. So if you can imagine, in between those poles, we've put like round magnets, and those round magnets were able to turn. And we can shut off the circuit, if you will, the magnetic flow. We can shut it completely off. Or we can tune those 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 round magnets to get more energy into the into the steel, and that's very important for for the technicians of today because there's oftentimes you need more energy, you need more magnetism, but it's fixed. It's a permanent magnet. You can't you know go out and get a scanner with bigger magnets because then it's just going to be heavier, and more difficult to use. So with this smart magnet uh, capability, you're able to tune. You say maybe I need a little bit more flux because I'm I'm inspecting a thicker plate so you can tune the magnet to give you more flux or maybe you you don't need as much because you're on a thin plate well then you can back it off so that's what a smart magnet is do you need to remove the coating on a tank floor to give it a proper inspection yes and no so it depends on what kind of inspection you're doing right so if you're doing like a weld inspection of, of the butt welds on the tank floor Yes, you're going to need to remove the paint. But for MFL, no, you do not need to remove the coating. Um, and the instrument will scan up through about 10 millimeters, in some cases a little bit more, 10 millimeters of coating, which is almost a half of an inch of coating. And what that coating can be just a paint, an epoxy, or a fiberglass reinforced plastic. It doesn't really matter as long as it's non-conductive coating. Uh, you do not need to remove that anymore to do MFL inspections. Can you tell if a defect is on the product side versus the soil side? And frankly, what does that really mean? Yes, we can tell what side the defect is on. So there's a special set of sensors. So we have a couple things going on in the sensors, but we have a special set. We call them STARS sensors, S-T-A-R-S. And that stands for Surface Topology Air Gap Reluctance Sensors. It's a really long mouthful name. And what these special sensors do is they're measuring, constantly measuring the density of the flux lines at the surface of the plates, right? So between the plate and the, and the sensors. And when if there's a disruption in the density of those, those magnetic flux lines, if they're interrupted, uh, it'll flag the system and say, hey, there's a disruption at the top side of this plate. And then the system will say, okay, this is on a top. I'm going to use a different set of sizing curves to give you an estimated percentage of wall loss. Um, because with MFL, the, the amount of flux leakage diff is different from if the defect is on the bottom or the soil side versus if it's on the product side or the top side. Right. So the system has to say, OK, which set of calibration curves do I need to use? And so when those star sensors are activated, they say, oh, this is on top. And this also gives the user the ability to actually image uh, what's on the top. Now, if there's no coding, Debbie, it really doesn't matter because you can just look down yourself and see, oh, yeah, that defect is on the top. But if it's coded, you're not going to be able to see that. MFL alone, 
Debbie can't tell you these things, and that, that's the downfall. There's just not enough uh, difference, or what we would call a delta, between the amplitude response of a bottom side versus a top side in order for de to determine its, its, its location. There is differences in the sizing from a bottom to a top side, but not enough for you to, to constantly be able to, with, with authority and confidence, to say, this is top, this is bottom. And that's why those special star sensors are important. The next two questions are, what is a sketch plate, an inner plate, and an annual, annular plate? And then the next question after that is, why is an annual annular plate so critical? So that that's, has to do with the construction of the storage tank, right? So when they're building these tanks, they, they start with, with the, uh, the floor. And so these are all the plates, the different types of plates that are on the actual floor. And so a sketch plate, we would just call, and, and some you might hear somebody mention them under different names, right? But a sketch plate, I'm going to call, it's just a, basically a, a, a polygonal shape. It's just a shape that's made up of straight lines, right? It's not a rectangle. It's not a square. It's, an, it's another shape, but it's all made up of, of, of straight edges. And so that's what we call a sketch plate. Because once you get into that tank, you say, you know what? I don't have enough room for an actual rectangle plate. I need to make it at a little bit different angle. And so these are the, the, uh, the ununiform plates in a tank that aren't quite square, aren't quite rectangle. So that's a sketch plate. Uh, the inner plate... Um, I'm going to term it as an actual plate that's a rectangle or, or at least has four 90-degree corners. And so I'm going to call that an inner plate. So the sketch doesn't have 90-degree corners all the way around. An inner plate does. And then last would be that annular plate. And that annular pl plate is the outermost plates that the shell of the storage tank actually sets on. So typically, not always, but typically the annular plates are thicker than the inner and the sketch plates because they have a lot more burden on them. They have the whole weight of that shell of that tank on, the, on them. Um, and that's one of the most critical welds in the storage tank is that annular weld or that chine weld where they meet the shell to that bottom annular plate. So they're kind of like, uh, they're curved, right? They have a radius and they go all the way around that tank. And so they're pretty uniform as far as length goes but they're just like half moons or, or half circles all the way around the very edge of that tank. So that's an annular plate. And why is it so critical? Yeah, I think it's because that's all the weight. That's where all the, most of the weight is positioned. That's where the, the biggest chance of having a leak uh, is going to happen. And so it's a very critical area to inspect and to monitor. How do you normally inspect it, an annular plate? And what are the various options to do that? So a typical floor map scanner, he can't go around curves, right? And so when they get to the annular areas, there's only a, a small area that you could scan in a straight line, if you will, it's trying to scan a half circle in a straight line. There's only a, a portion of that plate that you can scan. So they make uh, accessory scanners, smaller scanners, maybe hand pushed uh, that, are, that are smaller that you can go around curves and, and get areas that that you couldn't with your larger scanner. Um, some, Debbie, do 100% UT. Some say, you know what, on all the annulars, we want you to do 100% ultrasonic inspection on it. Um, some, they say, scan what you can and then do, do UT on the rest or the dead zone, the areas that you couldn't cover with MFL. And so there's a various, uh, various ways to, to ensure 100% coverage. 
but the scanner that is available to technicians today does actually scan in a curve. So that's the, that's the great thing. When you're inside a tank, Debbie, <laughs> and, and you're using multiple different equipments to, to scan it, there's given chance for mistakes or given chance for, for data to be lost in translation. Maybe, you know, because if you're having to handwrite all these things down and then compile it with your report from your inner plates, uh, from your sketch plates, you might get that lost. And so the scanners that the technicians can use now, uh, with in particular the FMX, you can scan straight and then you can set the wheels to scan in a curve. So you could set it for the curvature of that annular and now you can almost 100% cover that annular plate with the same scanner, with the same acquisition software and the same reporting uh, software. So you're not going to lose, you don't have the ability or chance to lose any of that data or handwritten notes and so forth. So. And how does this relate to the Hall effect sensors? There's two types of sensors, basically. There's coils and then there's Hall effect sensors. We choose Hall effect sensors versus coils. So what is a Hall effect sensor? So it's a thin sheet, very thin sheet of a semiconducting material. Okay. And there's a constant current, <clears throat> excuse me, that is flowing through it. If there's no magnetic field, uh, disrupting that current in that in that semiconducting material, then the voltage on the on the output is going to remain constant. But the moment you induce a magnetic field, there's a what happens is what's called a Lorentz force. The Lorentz force is exerted on that current that's flowing through that through that chip or that sensor. When that Lorentz force is exerted, the current is disrupted <laughs> and the voltage output is, is changed. There's a difference. And so we're able to measure the differences of the voltage output on that Hall effect sensor. But the, one of the main reasons we use Hall effect sensors is because it's measuring that magnetic field, Debbie, in a vector quantity. So magnetism doesn't all, only just have a magnitude or an amplitude, if you will. It also has a direction. It has, it has size and it has shape. And so a Hall effect sensor does a really good job of, of helping us see both the shape of the magnetic field and its uh, in intensity or its magnitude or amplitude or voltage, if you will. Coils, uh, in a sense, will just, be, will just give you a magnitude or just an amplitude response, right? Flux lines induce current into the coil. You get a little blip on the screen and that's it where Hall effect sensors does a little bit better job of giving us a shape of the magnetic uh, leaking field. What are the benefits uh, between mapping a tank? Or maybe I should ask, what are the differences and the benefits between mapping a tank versus free scanning a tank? So if you're mapping, what, what happens is you have 100% of that tank, that data is archived and auditable, right? So there's a little saying that we came out with, you know, it says inspect now, decide later, because you're capturing 100% of anything that's on that on that floor, you're capturing it inside software, and then you can later go in and really evaluate and analyze the details of, of what happened. And so that you get that with mapping. Um, you also get multiple views of the tank, right? So now you can, you know, just imagine you're looking from the top down of the tank. Now you get a holistic view of the entire floor through different views. Remember, I talked about stars earlier, and that's the top side view. So you could view that entire tank, uh, just say, hey, what's the top side of this steel look like? 
or you could say I just want to look at the bottom side of the steel and so you know you get mapping gives you the chance to holistically look at the whole tank and it makes the asset owner make some better decisions right um, you wouldn't get that in free scan mode free scan mode you're not capturing all of the data you're not going to have any any image to look at when you get out of that tank but with the with the FMX one of the great things is is you have the option so you could say you know what the customer doesn't really care about mapping but maybe you as the inspection service provider want to sell them on the the advantages of mapping so you could go in there and free scan the tank and then you, if you found a certain plate debbie that was really really corroded and you say this would be a really good example for me to show the client the condition of this plate or maybe you have a couple then you can choose to map only those plates and include those into your report um, so that's a good option. So I know that being inside of a tank is a dirty job. Um, how clean does the tank have to be to inspect it? Have you ever been inside one, Debbie? And I will never. I do not like enclosed spaces. So yes, no, <laughs> I'll pass. Yes. But dirty, yes. So how clean does it need to be? The answer that we always give is it needs to be clean enough to do a good visual inspection. So is it like that all the time? No. Sometimes you get in there and it's just too dirty to inspect, meaning there's just too much debris on the floor. And when you're inside a tank, Debbie, stuff is constantly falling on top of your head, falling from the roof, falling from the sides, you know, just mill scale, just general dirt byproduct and stuff. So you always want to bring a broom with you. And if you can, maybe a shop back because you're constantly sweeping the debris from one plate to the next so that you can scan clean, you know, on, on a clean surface. But all that stuff, all that stuff that you're scanning over, all that dirt, it's typically uh, ferrous, right? And so it'll attach itself to those magnets on the bottom of your scanner. And that's just something the technicians have to deal with. They're constantly having to lay that scanner over, take a, you know, like a nylon broom wipe it down, get all that debris out, because that debris can start to mess up with your signals, right? Make make it noisier, you know, that signal-to-noise response that we were talking about. And that's another place where that smart magnet comes in, Debbie. They can shut the magnet off, and then all that debris that you've picked up in that tank will just fall right off the scanner. So it makes life a lot easier for these guys and gals. <laughs> Is sizing an indication accurate with MFL or do you need another um, method to prove up indications? On all different modes of inspections, I always get asked this question about the accuracy. So I quickly looked up a quote before we got on this podcast. I found a good one. It's by Wyatt Earp. He said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. And I think he was talking about shooting <laughs> with gun. <laughs> right. But, uh, but yeah, accuracy is everything. And so when we talk about accuracy, under ideal conditions, plus or minus 10% is, is what we're going to tout for the, uh, for the floor scanners. And even in ultrasonic world, plus or minus 10% accuracy is acceptable. And that's an actual contact method. I mean, you, you can't get really more precise than with ultrasound. And so 10% is great accuracy. But do you need to prove up indications? Absolutely. It would be irresponsible for any inspector to not prove up. NDT is always a comparative method. And so you want to use more than one method. Um, but MFL as a screening tool has done a very good job over the years. And now with the new signal processing in the sensors, 
you know, you could get size and accuracy a lot better than 10%, but that's what we're going to say on the factory specs. All right. So what is the most precarious situation you've been in demoing equipment or inspecting? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you this story. It's not good or bad. Actually, I loved it. So I went on a, on a demo, a trial, if you will, to a copper mine in Chile. Uh, it was called Minera de Escondida. It was the, it's the world's largest copper mine. And I went up there to demonstrate corrosion mapping for a storage tank shell, right? So we weren't inside the tank. We we're going to put a robot on the outside of the tank and do UT thickness measurements all the way around that tank. And so traveling into Chile was, was awesome. Once I landed, I immediately got taken to a hospital uh, where I was administered blood tests, uh, a really thorough physical, a vision test, a pulmonary, pulmonary examination, lung capacity, uh, everything. Because I was about to go into this mine, which was on a mountain at an elevation of about 12 to 14,000 feet. And so the company wanted to ensure that anybody up there was physically able to make it. So I passed all that. Of course, I'm jet lagged. Then I have to go through about four days of training. Now, I am in Chile, and it's Spanish. I speak a little Spanish, but not enough to set through a safety class that's four days long. So the company hired me a translator. So I had a guy that spoke very good English, and so he sat next to me in the class and translated everything that the instructor was talking about. So that was fun. I got to develop a good relationship with him. Um, and so that was nice. We still keep communication on Facebook. So after that training, now I'm finally ready to go to the tank. So I've already spent one week in country. Then we, we begin the drive up to the mountain. Once I get there, I realize, wow, we are really high. And so then we're so high and the sun is so intense that you're forced to wear lip balm and, uh, UV protection all over your face. You keep your face covered because you can burn to a crisp really fast. And I, I was living in a what they call a man camp up there. Uh, so it's a mining, you know, a mining town. So literally, they had a, like four or five man camps up there that would house about thirty thousand uh, employees. And so I'm in a man camp, sleeping in a sleeping in a shared room at a high elevation on top of one of the most beautiful mountains, uh, you know, ranges that I've ever been in that exists in the world. They make movies of, of Mars. If you ever see movies of Mars, that's mm -hmm. typically shot there in Chile. Uh, some of the most, uh, the largest uh, telescopes are, are housed there in Chile as well because of the views and elevation and clearness of the sky. And so it was one of those precarious situations that lasted about two weeks and had me in predicaments and places in the world that uh, I, I never thought I would see. Um, but the actual inspection of the tank, Debbie, I found a lot of uh, laminations, mid-wall laminations. Their concern about this tank was that it was on top of a hill. And if something happened to this tank, all that water, and it was just housing water, all that water would roll down the hill and damage other parts of their process. And so it was pretty critical to them to, to make sure this tank was in, was in good strength. Okay. I, my one last question is... Um, would you share with uh, the listeners any 
Do you have any personal or professional bucket list items? Obviously, you've, you've been to the top of the world or Mars in Chile. <laughs> yeah, Mars, yeah. Yeah. So professionally, one of the things, bucket list, is I want to go on an offshore platform. So that's one of the things I haven't been able to do. And our equipment is used a lot off of offshore platforms. So I hope to one day be able to go and do an offshore platform. I want to go through the safety training that's involved, Debbie, in order to go offshore. You know, the Bosiet training where they put you in a helicopter and dunk you in water and, and see if you can get out. Oh, so, I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah. So they put you in a helicopter, <laughs> strap you in, and dunk you into a pool, right, and, and roll you over. And so you have to, without panicking, you know, get out of that helicopter. So I just think from adventure side, that's really cool. I would like to do that. All right, Lloyd. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Chat NDT with ASNT. For more information about our organization, please visit our website at asnt.org. You can also connect with us on social media at ASNT Info on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. Chat NDT with ASNT is copyrighted by the American Society for Non-Destructive Testing, ASNT, creating a safer world.